Hello, and welcome to FBC West Bible study questions that you have. Tonight we'll be taking a look at a couple of questions that aren't related. Every once in a while I'll ask, answer two or three questions that are kind of related. Uh, these will be two that are unrelated. Um, the first question is in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, Jesus says we will find rest for our souls. How will this happen? Well, ordinarily I go right to the Bible and I start answering the question, but I think it's important for me to kind of lay out a few things uh, before I answer the, the question directly. First of all, um, there seems to be this unrealized need that we have. Uh, some pastors and others have talked about it being a hole that is in us that we're looking to fill. Um, I'm not sure if that's a great analogy. It's, it's fine. I kind of look at it as a need. We have a need for water and for food and for rest and those types of things. I also think that we have a spiritual need and sometimes we're just not aware of it. And so we try to uh, think of what other types of things that might provide um, some type of answer to that need, not realizing uh, what that need is. And so, for instance, uh, husbands and fathers and men in general, uh, they think that they need peace. And so an example of this is when a uh, father comes home, uh, he gets home, he just wants uh, the kids to be quiet. He doesn't want screaming. Uh, he doesn't want a bunch of uh, mess and, and answer things. He just wants to kick off his shoes, relax, watch TV or whatever it may be. Now, the problem is he really, while he says he wants peace, that's not really what he wants, because if he wanted peace, then he would take whatever actually was needed to avoid the conflict. But men, being men, tend to avoid those types of answers. What he really wants is quiet. Uh, it doesn't matter whether the kids are arguing or the kids are just being loud. He just doesn't like the noise. He wants it quiet. So thinking he wants peace, in reality, all he wants is quiet. Other people think that, um, especially you'll hear a lot in today's society, that they want safety, they want safe places. They want the schools to be safe. They want wherever they go to be safe. And what we need to remember is that while people are looking for safety, safety isn't there. Uh, we look from a, to, to be a, free from war and disease and old age. And, uh, and the quite answer to this is none of these three or any other thing that you can add to that would talk about dying will keep you safe. Because death is total for every generation. I want you to think about that. Death is total for every generation. So whether you die of old age, war, disease, um, criminal conduct, none of us get out of this life alive. One of the great... Uh, Proponents of looking for that thing that will satisfy was Solomon. Solomon, uh, God came to Solomon and asked him, of all the things that you 
would like, I will grant any of them to you. What do you want? And Solomon answered wisdom. And God said, because you asked for wisdom, I'll give you other things as well. And so Solomon took a very specific approach. Most of us don't take this much of a specific approach. He decides that he's going to see what life will make him feel as if he's accomplished something. And so he starts off with pleasure and he tries to find all the things in life that would be pleasurable. He finds out that that's vanity, a waste of time. Then he looks at wealth and, and acquiring properties and houses and slaves and all these various things. And he finds that that doesn't satisfy. He looks at um, the way to work hard and to uh, work as hard as he can. And he comes to the conclusion that that doesn't satisfy. And then he says, well, I'll look at wisdom. Maybe if I totally pursue wisdom and know the difference between wisdom and folly, uh, that that will satisfy that need because I will be a wise person. And he comes to the conclusion after pursuing all of these things and not by happenstance, but he pursues them with great intent, with great purpose. Many times we will live our lives thinking that if we become wealthy, that that will satisfy that need. And we don't necessarily verbalize that. We just thinking that if we become successful, that'll make us feel better. And the situation, ultimately we come to the conclusion uh, as Solomon did, although like I said, he did it with great purpose and zeal, uh, that none of those things satisfy. And so Jesus doesn't offer us safety or pleasure, hard work or property or wisdom. He gives us and offers us something that's eternal, something that truly will provide for that need that we have. So let's look at exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 11. And we're going to look at 28, 29, and 30. And he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So first off, he's saying, when you come to me, I know life is hard. I know it's difficult. I'm not going to put burdens on you. I'm going to allow you to rest. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. So notice he says that when you place that yoke upon us, uh, a yoke is something you place on a, uh, a beast of burden like an ox. So that allows two or more ox to work in unison to get a job done. And he's saying, my yoke isn't going to make it more difficult for you to do the work because my yoke is easy. And then he says, and I'm humble, gentle and humble of heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So there's the, the answer. And you will find rest for your souls. Well, first, your soul is the one thing that's eternal. It's not that you will find rest for the body or you'll find rest for the mind, but you will find rest for the soul, that which is eternal, that which is really what makes up the essence of who you are. You're more than just your body. You're more than just your mind. You are 
if you will, almost like a trinity, your mind, body, and soul, your spirit, who makes up for what you are. Now, Jesus, in his using of rest for your souls, for the Jewish uh, audience, they're going to know what he's talking about. And if you, I'm going to suggest later you look at Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, and I will read that to you. Thus says the Lord. So it's God who is speaking to Jeremiah. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. So God's saying where the good way is, those ancient paths, that's where we are to walk. And then, and you will find rest for your souls. So when we walk in the good path, when we walk in the righteous path, that is where we will find rest. And so Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. There is no longer that sense of striving to please God, that by walking in Jesus, that path of righteousness, we then find rest for our soul. But to continue on in that verse, it says, but they said, we will not walk in it. So the human said, I don't care if we find rest for our souls. I refuse to walk in that ancient way, the, the paths of righteousness. But to kind of understand further why the soul is not is in need of rest. I want you to think of two things. When God created the world, he said, let there be light, and, and he made plants and animals and, and the various uh, sun and moon and all those things. And then eventually he made humans, man and woman. And after the six days, he said, and then God rested. And then as a part of the Ten Commandments, we are to take the Sabbath day and rest. It's a time when we're supposed to seek, cease our working and our efforts and to find rest for the mind and body, but also to contemplate on God and who he is so that it might renew our souls. And so one of the reasons that we need to find rest for our souls, we find the answer in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Let me take a drink of water here. Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I venture to say most of us kind of forget prior to our uh, acceptance of Jesus as our Lord, that in essence, we did not have peace with God. That God was, in fact, our enemy because we weren't seeking his way. We weren't walking in his path. We were his enemies. As Jesus, in essence, says, if you're not with me, then you're against me. There are no one who is neutral. And so by being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And not just a, it's not just quiet. It's not just no one's yelling or screaming, but it's the cessation of hostilities. There is a friendship. There is a new relationship. And it goes on to say, through whom 
Also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so I'm going to stop there. I'm going to keep going. But I want you to see that the rest for our souls does not talk about an absence of tribulations or trials or difficulties or illness or sickness. It is what we truly need, not a cure of the body, but a cure of the soul. And so it says that while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for the righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by the blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So not only are we through our faith justified, we have peace with God and God is no longer angry at us because we have come to him and he has saved us. But it was God who took the initiative. He didn't wait for us to turn over a new leaf. He didn't wait for us to get better. He died for us while we were still helpless, while we were still sinners. And because of that, he's no longer angry, but has, we have peace. Or even, I'm sorry, verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So by faith, we have been justified. We have been given peace with God. We have been uh, made, if you will, his sons and daughters. We are no longer subject to the wrath of God and that we have been reconciled. It's not like, well, I'm no longer mad at you. You know, if, if you've had a friend or a family member who's been mad and they say, okay, well, I'm not mad at you. Well, they may cease to be mad at you, but you're not necessarily back at the relationship that you want. And God says, because of the sacrifice of Christ and our faith in him, we have peace. We no longer are subject to wrath. We have reconciliation so that we are not just no longer, not just enemies, but we are together. And as the scripture talks about that, we are children of God. I want you to also look at Romans chapter 8, verses 28. Uh, Romans chapter 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the scriptures. And almost anything that you have a question about, you may find in, in Romans chapter 8. But starting with uh, verse 28, it says this, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now I want you to see that all things work together for to good. It doesn't say all things are good. 
It says all things work together for good. But all things don't work together for good for everybody. We tend to think that that's what that scripture means, or at least that's how we liberally apply it. But it says that all things work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And when you love God and called according to his purpose, it just doesn't matter what happens. God is going to cause that to work together for good. And so for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For just as it is written, we are for your sake being put to death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That list pretty much is exhaustive. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. So once we have been given peace with God, once we've been reconciled with God, that reconciliation is permanent. There is nothing that we do to increase that love. There's nothing that we do to cause God to no longer uh, be angry with us. We can find rest just as God rested after the sixth day and on the seventh he rested. We find rest in our souls because we no longer struggle for what that missing piece is, what that missing need is, because we found it in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord. So we no longer have to struggle. We no longer have to be afraid. We no longer have to be concerned whether he will withdraw his love from us that that love is unconditional, and therefore we have rest with our souls. Uh, one of my favorite hymns is, It is Well with My Soul. And I guess one of the reasons other than um, what it has to say is it was written by a lawyer. And so um, at least in one place, there was a lawyer who actually wrote something of value when it comes to spiritual matters. And in, in the verses, he talks about no matter what the sea billows may be waging or Satan may be buffeting my body or whatever the situation that I find myself, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, is that I, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul because I have rest with my soul. Um, so the, the best way that I can kind of 
uh, explain this in a, in a human. There was a general who uh, was leading his troops and bullets were flying all over and he was sitting on his horse and uh, he was making commands and, and he rallying his troops from defeat to victory. And when the battle was over, one of his uh, men asked him, General, I saw you in the midst of the battle and you were not afraid and you showed no fear. Why? And he said, because in essence, the Lord taught him that the Lord's in control and he is as safe in his bed as he is on the battlefield, that God will be there or not, and that he does not have to worry about the circumstances. Because in essence, while he didn't say this in, in reality, it is well with his soul. And so how does it take place? By having our faith placed in Jesus, which gives us peace and reconciliation and permanence that we don't have to strive. Now, it's also interesting that not only has God reconciled us. In Corinthians, I believe it's 2 Corinthians, it tells us that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. It's our ministry. It's our work to do, if you will, for all of us, not just the pastor, not just the deacons, not just the Sunday school teachers, but, and not just the elders, but each and every believer. It's their ministry of reconciliation to show them, show the world that they don't have to strive, that they don't have to be enemies of God, that God wants them to be children of his, that he wants them and that he did so. and They don't have to do anything to earn it, but simply place their faith in Jesus. And so I hope once we truly understand that we don't have to strive, that we don't have to worry, that circumstances will be circumstances, and it just doesn't matter because whether they kill the body, it's God who raises it in victory. They may persecute us, but in persecution, we find endurance and we find the proof of our faith. And so in those things that they think they're doing us damage, in essence, gives us the opportunity to refine our faith, to make it more genuine, and to give glory to God. And so uh, there is that sense of how does it happen? By simply placing our faith in the works of Jesus and resting in him. Now, the second question, which is totally unrelated, I find interesting that I'm the one who's going to be answering this question because as you can tell, um, I probably need uh, not uh, for religious purposes, but uh, for health purposes to, to do this and says, should we fast and why? And so the interesting thing is that there are certain things that are uh, involved in religious life um, that the scriptures are not replete with instructions. So, for instance, um, 
in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 and 30, uh, God talks about the Day of Atonement. In the Day of Atonement, they were to rest and in essence, afflict their souls. They were to take the thoughts of the sins that they had done that year and to atone for that and that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice for himself and the people. Uh, when it talks about afflicting their souls, uh, many people interpret that as meaning to fast. And so there is that sense of fasting there. Now, I can be cute here in a second and say, we all fast. And you might say, well, what do you mean we all fast? Because every time we eat the morning meal, that's called break fast, or we've shortened it to breakfast. But that's the meaning is that you break the fast by eating. And so uh, you say, ha ha, I, I fast every day because in the morning I break the fast. But we see in the scriptures uh, in, at Exodus 34, 28, that Moses fasted for 40 days and nights while being in the presence of God and receiving the law. We would think, wow, that, that must be whatever. But as Jesus will say, because Jesus at Matthew 4, verse 2, and the other gospels will talk about that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights while being in the wilderness. And so Jesus, when presented with the fact that he may be hungry after fasting, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so Moses, in essence, lived by the word of God because he was receiving the law. And Jesus was going through and completing in the wilderness what the people of Israel could not do while in the wilderness. Now, the Pharisees had a reputation of fasting twice a week. Now, you notice that I just covered the Old Testament with three verses. No one tells us how we're supposed to fast. No one tells us when to fast. No one tells us the work of the fast. It just says that they didn't eat. But the Pharisees, like I said, had this reputation for fasting twice a week because they wanted to show everyone how holy they are, that they were. And at Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 35, uh, we see that John's disciples fasted. And as a matter of fact, Jesus' disciples were criticized for not fasting. And Jesus' justification for their not fasting was that he, as the bridegroom, was present with them. And as long as he was there, there was no need to fast, but there would be opportunity for them to fast. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you three instances of fasting so that you might understand fasting, and then we'll answer the question. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 12, this is one of the heart-wrenching wrenching times of the Scriptures. And starting with verse 15, it says this. So Nathan went to his house, that's David's house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow 
bore to David so that he was very sick. And David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and laid all night on the ground. And the elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with him. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of the Lord were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voices. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? So David was fasting and praying because he wanted to change God's mind because he wanted God to spare the child. And so he, if you will, humbled his soul. And, and you can, as if you're a parent, can totally understand that if your child is sick, you will do almost anything for that child to get well. And David went to the source. He went to God and said, in essence, God, change your mind, spare my child. And he afflicted his soul and he didn't eat. And quite frankly, you can understand it. Even if it wasn't a formal fast, when you are so devastated by some life event, eating just isn't on a priority. And so he's fasting and he's praying because of the severe circumstance and wanting God to change his mind. But notice what happens. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for the, for I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. So David does not reject God and is not angry with God because the child dies because God doesn't change his mind. God is acknowledged for who he is. And David gets up, washes himself, prepares himself, goes to the house of the Lord and worships. How awesome is his faith in God that no matter the circumstances, and that God didn't change his mind. So mean people say, well, then he wouldn't have had enough faith or whatever. And David goes, no, I tried to change God's mind. He continued to do what he said he would do. I will still worship him. That we would be in that situation. But again, David fasted, not in the essence to prove that he's holy, but is in his desperate need for God to change his mind. The other uh, fast that I like to show you is found in Nehemiah chapter 1. 
Now, Nehemiah was a court official as an exile. And he hears a report and it says this, and starting with verse 2 of chapter 1. Then Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there and the providence who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, and he's going to recount his prayer. I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned. Notice Nehemiah does not say, well, it's those guys who sin. Uh, I'm not. He joins with them and saying, we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of who you have been scattered were in the most remotest part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and the prayer of the servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. And he says, I was a cupbearer to the king. So we see that because of this great distress, because of what's happening to God's people in Jerusalem, we see that Nehemiah just doesn't take it as, well, let's put it on the prayer list. He becomes distressed. And as so much so that he prays and he fasts to show the purpose and his desire that God might hear. He tells God, God, you're right. When you told Moses that if we didn't listen to you and obey you, that you would scatter us. But then when we return to you, that you would place us back into your promised land. And so he's acknowledging that God was right, but asking God that because what God had said, may it come to pass. And he does so in distress, and he does so by prayer and fasting. Uh, so it's obvious that it is something that he means for God to hear, because it's just not like I said. Let's put it on the prayer request list and hope that God answers. The uh, last one is we find in Acts 
which is the New Testament book, Acts chapter 13. Starting with verses 1 through 3. Now there were in, at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who is called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who later would become known as Paul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So in this instance, fasting is done because they're needing to make a decision of who they are going to send on this missionary journey and that the Holy Spirit might direct them. And so they pray and fast to get God's direction. So we've seen, for instance, of David out of great distress of his soul because of his child. We see Nehemiah in great distress because of God's people being in distress. And we see in the New Testament, the believers gathering together and praying and fasting. And you notice fasting always is connected with prayer. It's not they fasted or they prayed. It was prayer and fasting. And so when you need to make an important decision, that might be an excellent time to pray and fast. So to answer the question, should we fast? I believe you will when the occasion calls for it in your life. When there is an overwhelming distressful event, you will probably either on purpose or unintentionally fast because of the situation. Or when you need to make an important decision, it may be appropriate to fast. However, the warning is we are not to fast to be perceived by others or to, for ourselves to perceive that we are holy. Fasting doesn't make you holy. All you have to do is look at the Pharisees and Sadducees who fasted twice a week. And Jesus basically had little else but contempt for them because their holiness was not holiness. It was self-righteousness. Fasting is where you truly afflict your soul so that you might receive the word of God. And Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, Jesus tells us how to fast. Now, I'm not going to read that scriptures, but I want to tell you this. In essence, Jesus says, so when you fast, do so as if no one will know that you're fasting. You should be happier than you normally are. You should not be cross. You should not be short-tempered. You should not have excuses. You should not look like 
oh, poor me, I haven't eaten in hours or days or whatever, to receive some type of um, praise that you're, oh, you're so holy. You're so concerned about this situation that you're fasting. Jesus says, if you're going to fast, do so. In essence, that no one knows you are. And so the answer is, should we fast? When life calls for it? Should anybody know we're fasting? Only in the group who is fasting with us, but not for the purpose of holiness, but for the purpose of truly seeking the will of God. And in that, I think that it's totally appropriate to fast. But if you cannot do that, if you are subject to wanting to make yourself holy, then as Jesus says on other things, then you will have already received your reward. You wanted people to think you were holy by fasting. But if you truly are afflicting your soul, if you're truly so distressed at some life event, either in your own life or someone else's, or either so concerned that you make the right decision, then I would say, God bless you and do so. And with that, I hope that answers those two questions. And with that, let's have a word of prayer and we'll close. God, I thank you that sometimes you don't give us express answers how to do something or how not to do something, but that you allow us to decide how and when to do it. You give us some guidelines, like in fasting, you give us some guidelines as to not to be hypocritical in it, not to do it for holiness. And God, we thank you that you have provided rest for our souls. We no longer have to work for our salvation, but that you through Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, we have found his work to be complete. And as he said on the cross, it is finished. There's nothing I can do to add to it or subtract from it. And I thank you that I can rest in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. And we'll see you soon.